Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. Okay, let's do this guys. If you have your Bibles, let's uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 5. Let me just open with a word of prayer and then I'll explain and we'll get into our Bible study tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God of Israel, Father I thank you for your word, I thank you for the truth it contains, thank you for the picture it gives us of your son Jesus and I pray now that we would use my words Lord to glorify him. In Jesus name and for his sake we pray. Amen. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 5. If uh, We've been working our way through all the historical books of the Old Testament and uh, 1 and 2 Kings follow closely from 1 and 2 Samuel where we saw Saul and David. We ended with the death of David and now we're into the reign of Saul, uh, Solomon. Excuse me. So Solomon has taken over the throne of his father David. In the first few chapters um, we see Solomon, his marriage, we see his request, that famous chapter where he requests wisdom from God and then we see that display of wisdom where he settles this dispute amongst a, few, a couple of women in his kingdom. Um, and then in the end of chapter 4, the, the fame of Solomon as, it's, as he becomes well known and famous throughout all the lands. And these are really the glory days of the kingdom of Israel, the Solomonic kingdom. This is the high point uh, in Solomon's reign and career, basically. Now in chapter 5, we're going to begin to see the construction of the temple. And in my view, I think chapters 5, 6, and 7 that deal with the construction of the temple are some of the most important chapters uh, in these books. And they're also really, you could say, that the main point that Solomon was raised up, one of his main purposes was obviously to build this temple. Let me read to you 1 Chronicles 28, uh, verses 5 to 10. I'm paraphrasing slightly. He says, He hath chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of the Lord, over Israel. And he said unto me, Solomon thy son, he shall build my house and my courts. Take heed now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. The Lord has chosen you to build my house. This was really the charge of Solomon. Another interesting thing about Solomon is that, like his father David, he is often used in the Bible as a type of Christ. Now a type, when I say that, we're talking about the biblical definition of a type. Uh, the best way to understand this would be a, a prefiguring or a shadow. Um, we see this many times. We saw it with David, whereby a king of the Old Testament, a prophet or a priest of the Old Testament, in some way teaches us something about the ministry of Jesus Christ, who was prophet, priest and king, all in one person. So we, that is what we mean when we say a type. It's a hint, a, a foreshadow of something deeper in the scripture. And just as we saw with David, we're going to see the same thing with Solomon here. He teaches us lots about the kingly reign of Christ, and particularly the future reign of Christ the King in the kingdom to come. You see, his reign here, as we see, particularly for the high, well, only for the high point of his reign here, is the reign of the Prince of Peace. It's one of the sort of definitions that we have. In fact, Solomon's name actually means peace. It comes from the root word where we get the word shalom, peace for. And uh, we see this really giving us a picture of Christ our King. Let me read you 1 Chronicle, Chronicles 22.9. Now, if you're reading these books, it's always good to try and read 1 and 2 Chronicles sort of along with them because you'll find they, they cover a lot of the same material, but 1 and 2 Chronicles supply us with a lot of uh, extra information that we don't have in the narrative of kings, and it's quite interesting to do that. Let me read 1 Chronicles 22, verse 9. 
The Lord said to David, Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be peaceable, and I will give peace and quietness in Israel all his days. So this is the promise. His name shall be peaceable. His name literally does mean peace. That's what it means. And Solomon has this. We see in this first part of his, la- his reign, it is a time of peace. Now, it's interesting to note that Solomon's peaceable kingdom was only possible because of the victories of his father, David. Okay? This is very important to understand because likewise for us, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, the son of David. Okay, Solomon had peace in his kingdom because of what his father David did. We have peace with God because of what Christ did on the cross. We can enjoy, enjoy the glorious reign of God in our hearts at this time because of Jesus Christ. And when we look into the future, ultimately it will be because of Christ's victory in the day of the Lord battle, which closes the eschaton, the end period of earth's history, the day of the Lord, as we call it, when Christ comes back and his wrath falls upon this earth and he, just like David, he has those battles. The battle, the, you know, the day of the Lord's battle as it's called. And then after that, you move into the time of the peaceable kingdom. You see how this is a beautiful picture between David and Solomon of Christ and the kingdom. David fought the victories. He was a man of war. He couldn't build the temple. Solomon was a man of peace because of the battles that David won for him. Therefore, he was able to build the temple. That would inaugurate this time of peace. Christ wins the victory for us. We have peace in our hearts now. And yet in a time in the future, Christ will win the victory in the day of the Lord against his enemies. And then he will set up his kingdom with a future temple to rule on this earth. The parallels here, I'm going to draw out quite a few of these as we go through because I just find them fascinating, to be quite frank. Now, as I kind of pull these out, we're going to spend a bit of time before I actually get into the, into the text because I do think these shadows, they really show us the design, the unity of the scriptures, the, the inspiration of the scriptures. Because you must remember when we're, when we're reading something in the New Testament, these are books you know, written thousands of years in some instances or hundreds of years later, completely different contexts and usually under Roman rule as opposed to under Babylonian or Assyrian or Jewish rule. Um, so the time period is huge, but yet these typologies are still beautifully connected throughout the whole of Scripture. Um, we see Solomon ruling. One thing we know about Solomon, he was w- wise. This is what Solomon's known for. He was a king of wisdom, and he ruled his kingdom, this united kingdom, this glory era of the kingdom of Israel, with wisdom. And I believe this is, again, just a foreshadow, a picture of what we will have in the kingdom to come. Because Christ, it says, doesn't it, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he will rule with that wisdom and knowledge in the age to come. Now we also know Solomon wrote, obviously, Proverbs. He also wrote a couple of Psalms that we have recorded for us here. In Psalm 72, you can turn there if you have your Bible. I'm not going to read the whole thing, I'll just pick a few verses for you. It's very interesting to look who the Psalms, whenever you're reading Psalms, look at the little inscription on the top of the book of Psalms. Because quite often the details that you get given in those are really interesting for the historical context of who writes the Psalm, what period it was for. This is Psalm 72 is a Psalm of Solomon. Let me just read a little bit to you. It's a royal Psalm, which tells us something again, that it's teaching something about the king. Now, usually it's a king, obviously, but it's obviously talking about the ultimate king. 
Verses 1 to 2, Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness. In his days may the righteous flourish, an abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. I'm skipping verses, obviously you won't follow me. This is, I'm just jumping a few verses. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be his glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Now obviously, this is a, this is a psalm of Solomon. He prays here that his kingdom, or the king's reign, would be characterised by righteousness, peace, by power, by compassion, and by prosperity. And as you know, all of these things are things that will characterise Christ's future reign too. Now these royal psalms, the way we read these is quite often in the Old Testament, you'll see David's psalms do this a lot too, they will be referring in one instance to an Old Testament king, to to David often himself, or to a kingdom, but obviously we understand that they do point forward in that uh, fulfilment sort of a way to the ultimate king, Jesus Christ, because There's a title given for Jesus Christ in the New Testament that connects this narrative that we're reading now. Remember in Matthew 12, it says, The Queen of the South will rise up in in judgment on this generation because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. This is the king. The Queen of Sheba came to hear, we'll we'll hit that in a few chapters in Kings, the wisdom of Solomon, but yet now there is one greater than Solomon is here. Let me go a little further with this for you. As we mentioned, the name Solomon means peace. His reign was really for the Prince of Peace. His reign was notable for five reasons, and I'm talking about really the, the glory period of his reign before the sin entered and we kind of get back to reality. So the first ten chapters of the Book of Kings really cover this. But the, this period of his reign was notable for five reasons. One, wisdom. We read that in 1 Kings 3 and 4, and we see it now in 5. Peace and prosperity. It was also notable because of the building of the temple. That's a huge part of, of this book here of Solomon, of what he did, the building of the temple. Also because in that particular temple, God entered that temple. The glory of the Lord came. We'll get to those chapters. And then also the visit of the Queen of Sheba is very notable in these first chapters. That's in fact the last thing that happens before we start to see the narrative go the other way in some ways. All of these things, the wisdom, the peace, the prosperity, the building of the temple, God being in the temple, and the visit of the Queen of Sheba, are all prophetic fulfilments. And all of them find their ultimate fulfilment in the reign of the future king, the one who is greater than Solomon, Jesus Christ. Let me read you a few scriptures that demonstrate this. Firstly, wisdom. The prophet Isaiah wrote this, Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 4. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse... And a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and reprove the equity for the meek on the earth. Very similar to Solomon's psalm, isn't it, that we're reading there? He wrote, with righteousness he shall judge, and he will have the Spirit of the Lord, a Spirit of wisdom, resting upon him just like uh, Solomon did, but obviously we know this is referring, Isaiah 11 refers to Jesus Christ. Peace. The prophet Micah said this, And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong nations, 
And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. Just as Solomon's kingdom here was characterised by peace, this is a prophecy that in the millennial kingdom, Christ's reign will also be characterised by peace. The temple... A temple will again stand in Jerusalem. I believe this is what the scriptures teach. If you read the book of Ezekiel, verses chapters 40 to 49, you'll find details of this temple. Uh, many of the details are quite hard for us to understand, I'll admit. Um, but you'll, one thing you'll learn is that the glory of the Lord will once again be in that temple. Not only that, the, res- the glorified, risen Messiah, Jesus Christ, will be in that temple. So just in the same way as Solomon's temple, God dwelt there with the Shekinah, in the Millennial Kingdom, God will once again dwell in that temple. And then I want to just focus in a little bit on this unusual thing that we get told about the Queen of Sheba. So Queen of Sheba, I think it was somewhere roughly in in sort of Ethiopia region, but she was a Gentile ruler, basically, who heard the fame of Solomon and travelled to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of this great king. And this is a wonderful picture for us of the kingdom. You see, many times in the Bible, in pretty much all of the old major and minor prophets, you'll find these passages that speak of the time in the future when the nations will flow up to Jerusalem and the law will go forth from Jerusalem, from the mouth of the, the risen king, from the Messiah. And this is a picture of what we have here. Let me read to you Isaiah. It says, now, Isaiah chapter 2, this is, now it will come about that in the last days... The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Again, you see how this picture is just being beautifully displayed. A Gentile ruler is seeking Solomon out for his wisdom, and here we find out that all the Gentile nations will one day in the future be seeking out the teaching and the wisdom from the mouth of Messiah. Type of Christ. We saw it with David, we see it with Solomon, and they teach us about the future king. And it's not just Isaiah. The book of Micah is a small verse. Micah 4, chapter 2. It says, Many nations shall come and say... Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Almost identical language there. And to the house of the God of Jacob. This will be Christ in his kingdom. Let's turn to chapter 5 now and let's get into the text. I wanted you just to have that sort of background in your head as we go through these narratives because it makes them so much richer. We are about to see the preparations that Solomon made for the temple. And just one more thing. You may be aware in the Bible, temple language permeates the whole of scripture. Okay, ever since the time in the Exodus when it was the same sort of thing with the tabernacle all the way through, and even before, because we know the tabernacle was just a representation of the heavenly things on earth. So temple language permeates scripture. So whenever we hear something about the temple, it should really make us kind of listen up. So that we're, there's a huge spiritual application for us whenever the temple is mentioned. Because what do we find in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple? of the Holy Spirit who is in you. 
So we are individually described as being temples of the Holy Spirit. That should make us aware that whenever we read something about the temple, there is something for us to learn in there on a personal application. We also have in 2 Corinthians 6, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then of course in Ephesians chapter 2, it says... uh, You are fellow citizens and saints of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So both individually and as corporately as the church, we are described using this temple language. So let's see what we can learn from this. Now let's read the first six verses. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon, and when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always been a friend of David. Then Solomon sent word to Hiram, saying, You know that David my father was unable to build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune." Behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to David my father, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he will build the house for my name. Now therefore command that they cut for me cedars from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will give you wages for your servants according to all that you say, for you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Now we see here a sort of uh, the diplomatic and friendly relations that David obviously forged. Obviously he was a man of war, he had a lot of battles in his time, but this kind of shows his wisdom in some ways. He was obviously friendly with some of the nations around him. And what we see here is that this relationship that David forged is now bearing fruit in the next generation in the life of Solomon. And immediately there's a very good spiritual application for us here. As we labour in building up God's temple now, as we've already seen we are described at, you see... We need to invest in the next generation. You see, our passions, our desires, and our efforts take time to mature sometimes. We don't often see the fruit immediately in our own lives like we want. We want things done now, don't we? We want to, we want to invest in something, we want to see the fruit. It doesn't always work like that when you're building a temple. But we take this example here. David spent time investing in relationships and it was his son who benefited from us. Now, those of us who have kids here, you understand this principle as you try and do everything for your kids. And even if you don't, you understand it in a spiritual sense for the church. We all see it on a sort of you know, national and a global sense that you invest in the people of God because you want the next generation to know and benefit from the work you've done in the people of God. And this is a very good, uh, you know, good example for us to follow here. Now, it says Hiram. This was a king of Tyre. He was a friend of David. He was a Gentile king. They would have said a pagan king at this time. Now, it also shows us that he was not just a colleague, not just a work associate, not just sort of a trading partner that he obviously had. It says he was his friend. This is quite a friend would be quite an intimate term to call someone a friend. Um, and this again shows us the relationship that David had built with him. He was a, this was a Gentile king, Solomon rather, David rather was a Jewish king. And it shows how important, this again shows us how important it is to seek relationships outside of our immediate circles. One of the problems we have as being Christians 
it seems to be the longer you become a Christian, the smaller your circle gets of people who are not Christians in your life. Now, there's a practical reason for that, I think, because you spend so much of your life investing in Christian things, you just don't have enough time to go around. But it's just a reminder to be intentional, maybe, if you do have a group of friends at work, school, college, or wherever you are, that are not Christians, the Lord can do something amazing with you in that environment. And it may go on to affect future generations, just like David investing in his friendship with Hiram is now coming to bear fruit in the lives of his son Solomon. And obviously for the temple, for all of us in that sense. The Lord can use it. Now Hiram sends a delegation. He hears that Solomon now has ascended to the throne because he was friendly with David. He thinks it would be a very wise thing to do to send his servants to Solomon to extend the hand of friendship for this new king. And Solomon, obviously operating in his wisdom here, he responds in kind. And what we see here, really, in this first six verses and then the next six verses or so, is two letters going back and forth. We see the letter that's just been written um, from Solomon to Hiram, and then we're going to see Hiram reply with his letter um, for the next few verses. And it's just this very uh, good relationship that's formed between these two people. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that during the first century, when the historian Josephus was writing, uh, he, was a, he was a Jewish person who sort of uh, ended up joining forces with the Romans, and he was a, a brilliant historian. Um, a lot of what we know of the ancient world comes from Josephus. Uh, there's a very interesting part in Antiquities of the Jews. It's a book he wrote um, for the Roman emperor about Jewish history, where he's talking about uh, David, uh, Solomon rather, and Hiram, and he mentions these letters. Let me read to you what he says about them. So these two letters that we're reading today, this is what a first century historian says about them. He says, the copies of these epistles remain to this day and are preserved not only in our books but among the Tyrrhenians also, insomuch that if anyone would know the certainty about them, he may desire of the keepers of the public records of Tyre to show them to him. And he will find what is there set down to agree with what we have said. I have said so much out of a desire that my readers may know that we speak nothing but the truth and do not compose a history out of some plausible relations, which deceive men and please them at the same time, nor attempt to avoid examination, nor desire men to believe us immediately, nor are we at liberty to to depart from speaking truth, which is proper commendation for a historian." This is, this is Josephus. He was writing as a historian for the Roman Empire, and as he's writing about this, he says even, he, you know, even to this day, these epistles are available in the public records of both the Jewish kingdom and the kingdom of the Tyrrhenians. I find that quite amazing, um, that we have sort of external corroboration of events dating back, uh, letters dating back to the time of Solomon. Now, we don't have them today, obviously, but this was in the first century, but that's still quite amazing. Now, notice in verse 3, It says, you know that David, my father, so this is Solomon writing to Hiram. He says, you know, again, he's speaking to a Gentile king here. So this, again, shows the depth of the relationship between the two men. He he assumes that Hiram knows that David's desire was to build a house for the God of Israel. They'd obviously discussed spiritual things together many times. Again, this just shows us it wasn't just a trade relationship, a, a cordial relationship between two kings. David and Hiram were friends. David had obviously spent time with him and he knew, and had told him about the, how, his desire to build a house. And Solomon knows this and he says here, you know, and he goes on to quote, doesn't he? He says, you know that David, my father, was unable to build a house 
for the name of the Lord because he was war. And then he goes on and he even quotes from the Davidic covenant that David uh, made, assuming that Hiram knows all those stuff. So it just goes to show that David had obviously told Hiram quite a lot of what was in his heart. His desire was to build a house for God. It filled his heart and his mind so much that he told all those around him. And this is, again, another very good application for us as members of God's household. You see, that which fills our hearts and our minds, those desires that we have, will ultimately be the things that come out of our mouths when we're with people. Now, you may know this to be true, and you may know those times where you have to kind of you, you kick yourself for biting your tongue when you knew you should have said something, but you didn't for those reasons that you didn't have time or you didn't want to make it awkward. We've all been in those situations. But ultimately, speech is a very good indicator of what is going on in a person's heart. Jesus makes reference to this. This was so prominent in Jewish teaching. You know, out of the heart, the mouth, you know, out of the mouth, the heart speaks. These sorts of comments, this is what it's for. And we learn here that David's desire was to build the temple and he clearly told the king of the, his friend here in the surrounding nation. This is a very good example for us. Now I find it quite a scary example too, you know, because, you know, we're, we're a church that we go through the Bible, we're hearing these, these sort of truths from the scriptures all the time. We need to be thinking on them, meditating on them, and then we need to be speaking them to people in whatever means or way that you have available to you, wherever you are placed. A little later in this chapter, we're going to see that the living stones of the temple are used in all sorts of different ways by all sorts of different people. And that's one of the beautiful things about the body of Christ and why I believe this analogy is applied to the church so often. Verse 6. Now therefore command that they cut for me cedars from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will give you wages for your servants according to all that you say. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. You see, Solomon here now proposes a trade deal with Hiram for building the temple. Again, he's a wise man. The cedars of Lebanon were greatly famed for their strength and beauty. You see them all throughout the Bible. Poetically in the Psalms, the great cedar trees of Lebanon are always spoken of to do with strength and beauty and majesty. And you find them in in extra-biblical literature too. It was just common at the time. That's what they were. They were the best of the trees. And there's another few things we can take from this first six verses. He enlisted Hiram to help him build the temple. Think about that for a moment. It was a Jew and a Gentile working together to build the temple of God. And now this speaks to us again. What a wonderful picture of the church, the spiritual temple, where there is neither new, you know, there is both Jew and Gentile together in Christ, building the house of God. Romans 3.29, remember that, that passage in Romans where Paul is sort of explained to the, the Jewish people about the place of the Gentiles. And he says, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also. And we see this already foreshadowed in the fact that here we have, right back in the day, the original temple was built by both Solomon and Hiram working together. We also learn that he wanted the best for God the best material available. And also notice he says, I'll pay you whatever you ask, no matter what the cost. I want the best materials, no matter what the cost. That's what Solomon's attitude was for building the sanctuary. Now, we can learn a lot from this, I believe. If I could make a little sort of tongue-in-cheek example, 
often in our church life we have this attitude, don't we? I've got a nice new so-and-so. I'll see if the church wants the old one. Um, I'm not making a point about church life. My point is the, the theological point behind it. But too often we we sort of see that attitude, don't we? I understand there's a prag, you know pragmatic sort of reason why it works, and in particularly in the Western world, you know, our seconds are still very very good compared to a lot of the world. But it was the attitude of Solomon's heart. For him, he was doing this to honour God, and only the best was going to be available to God. And he was a man of means, and he was willing to pay whatever the cost for that. And now we can take a good lesson from that. Now, you see, Solomon's attitude is an example for us. Now, for us, it's not maybe so much about physical objects. That's just an example I used. But it's about, in the Bible, it talks about our spiritual service to God. Our offering to God as we, you know, our, spirit, our bodies as a living sacrifice to God is an acceptable offering. You see, we must think about how we are honouring God in the same manner as Solomon was thinking about getting these materials for the temple, as we offer ourselves as a sacrifice to build up the holy temple of God. You see, remember in the book of Malachi, Malachi is bringing a sort of a rebuke to the priests because they were bringing their sacrifices to the temple and they had the best lambs and they were supposed to bring the unblemished lambs to be sacrificed on the altar, but they were sort of saying, you know what, It's a bit of a waste just to throw these on the altar. We have need for these. We'll keep these ones for ourselves and we're going to bring these ones that actually have defects and we're going to burn them on the altar because, you know, no one's going to use them. And you can just see the attitude there. The priests, their heart was not for God. Their heart was not where Solomon's was right now. And there's one very important verse in Malachi 1 verse 10 where God says to them, he would rather they just close the doors to to the temple than bring them cheap sacrifices. And think about this. He would rather you just close, just close the doors, stop. Okay, you're doing this wrong. It's, he's not even accepting it. He's not hearing it. It's very strong words from God. And this is one of the, the things that Malachi was bringing here. And this is, again, we need to model. Solomon here, I believe, is modeling, is a model for us in the church. He wanted the best for God and he was willing to do whatever it cost. In a spiritual application, we want to give our best to God and we have to give our lives to God you know we, we did it on Sunday morning you know he doesn't you know got to be willing to take up the cross to be one of my disciples it goes back to that point this is where what we're getting at here honoring God means giving him the best of our lives we should give God the best in terms of the cost the gift reveals your estimate to the one whom you offer it I'm not just talking about money I'm talking about any sort of thing that you could fill that fill the blank with there we should give God the best in terms of our quality and we should give God the best in terms of our priorities Remember Matthew, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. It's about the attitude of the heart, that's really what I'm getting at here, that we see from Solomon. Now let's read verses 7 to 12 together. When Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord today, who has given to David a wise son over this great people. So Hiram sent word to Solomon, saying, I have heard the message which you have sent me. I will do what you desire concerning the cedar and cypress timber. My servants will bring them down from Lebanon to the sea, and I will make them into rafts to go by the sea to the place where you direct me. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall carry them away. Then you shall accomplish my desire by giving food to my household. 
So Hiram gave Solomon as much as he desired of the cedar and cypress timber. Solomon then gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of beaten oil. And thus Solomon would give Hiram year by year. The Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised him and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and the two of them made a covenant. This, so this is basically the second epistle that we see, the reply from Hiram to Solomon. Again, you can see they're both getting off on friendly terms following the relationship of um, David. Now, notice Hiram says, Blessed be the Lord today. And he uses the, the proper name for the God of Israel there. And a lot of people think this is an indication that he was in fact a, a, a Gentile worshipper of the God of Israel, a God-fearer at this time. And I, I I'd probably like to think that that is actually true when you see the typology here and the relationship between David and uh, Hiram and now between Solomon and Hiram and his just willingness to, to agree, you know, he's willing to put his nation, his, his people to work to cut these trees and just send them to him. Remember Solomon said, ask, you know, whatever the cost. Now most people would be like, well this is going to cost me a lot, I'm going to give all of my good trees, I'm going to put, you know, hundreds and thousands, you know, thousands of my men to do this, we're going to build these ships, we're going to have to transport them down river. That's a, that's a lot of cost. And he says, all I want is just to give food for my people. You see, he doesn't even ask for money from Solomon for this. And this, again, shows me, which is one of the reasons I believe where he says, blessed be the Lord God today, is that he's actually saying that from a genuineness of a relationship that he actually had at this time, which I believe was David was probably responsible for. Um, and that, you know, we don't have much to go on. That's me maybe speculating a bit, but I think there's good reason you could make a strong case for that. And he then describes, obviously, how he's going to transport these goods. And you notice, it's, they were known, the Sidonians and the Tyrians, they were incredibly skilled at this. You know, building these barges and transporting, you know, this was not easy work in this day. But they were, they were known for it all around the ancient world. And again, this is another very good thing for us here. We hear a lot about spiritual gifts, and you can never really hear enough about spiritual gifts, and that's true. But in many ways... We need to make sure that we understand that our abilities, our talents, our skills, our vocations and our trades, in many ways, can also be used by the Spirit of God for the building of his kingdom. We see that right here. These people, they were known. They were tradesmen. They were craftsmen. This is what they were known for. And they were being used to help build the temple of God in Jerusalem. Just as all of us are, we have, many of us have natural skills. So some of us probably know our abilities more than we would, would be able to recognise our spiritual gifts. Now, I'm not condoning that, but that means you've got to search to do to find your spiritual gift. But many of us have natural abilities that, under the submission of the Holy Spirit, can operate in some ways very similar to a spiritual gift. Because when submitted to the Lord, the Lord will use those for His kingdom, and I find that really, really encouraging. Because if you know any people at all, you know, even in a small room like this, the amount of gifts and skills and abilities, the difference, you know, that different people have, even in, and from country to country, from group to group, nation to nation, it's just amazing, the diversity that we have there. And when these things are submitted to the Lord, we see that the Lord will build a wonderful temple. And obviously, the spiritual application is the church, and his kingdom will be continued to be built throughout this earth. Verses 13 and 14. Now King Solomon levied forced labourers from all Israel, and the forced labourers numbered 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in relays. They were in Lebanon a month and two months at home, and Adoniram was over 
the forced labourers. Now, my, my Bible there says forced labourers. If you're reading an NIV or, or another translation, it, you might have the words conscripted labour. Conscripted labour maybe gives you a slightly better flavour because when we hear the term forced labour, we immediately sort of jump jump to the sort of maybe 19th, 20th century slave trade. Um, that's not quite what was going on here. Conscripted labour is probably a better a better term here. Now, conscripted, you know, we had conscription. People were conscripted to go to war, weren't they? It was kind of not voluntary, you know, you didn't really want to do it, but you were part of the nation, part of the free nation, and it was your duty to respond in that way. Um, this was a time of peace. They had the workers to do this sort of thing. So I, Solomon, he conscripted people. And he had sort of a two-tiered system. We'll look at that in a little bit. But so there were a lot of people here. And we know from the book of Second Chronicles that Solomon, uh, he, he did a count of all the people that he had in his kingdom. And he knew how many he had to spare. And you'll notice with these first people, he didn't just send them to the quarries to work. Uh, he had... 10,000 and he sort of rotated them on a month, one month on, two month off schedule. So they'd work for a month, then they'd come home for two months. So that is quite a, a wise sort of way that we can think that he, he divided these labor forces. Now, these were probably the Israelite laborers, the ones that were there, um, as free Israelites. And we also know that they assisted the, the laborers that King Hiram also sent. Let's just read 15 to 18. We'll just finish the chapter and then we'll make a few uh, sort of final thoughts of application on this. Now Solomon had 70,000 transporters, 80,000 shewers of stone in the mountains. And besides Solomon's 3,300 chief deputies who were over the project and who ruled over the people who were doing the work, then the king commanded and they quarried great stones, costly stones, to lay the foundation of the house with cut stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the Gebelites cut them and prepared the timbers and the stones to build the house. Now this second labour force, these, these greater numbers, 70,000, 80,000, in Chronicles it tells us that this is made up of the aliens in the land. So these were foreigners, usually, probably some of them were the remnants of the Canaanites who, who they didn't uh, completely destroy, who were really you know, living at the benefit of Israel, but they were in effect operating, I mean, they were slaves of the Israelites. But again there were quite a lot of uh, protections that aliens living in the land had, much more than you would find in in the ancient Near East at this time. But they were the ones who were at this time conscripted to go and do a lot of the hard work with transporting and cutting these sorts of stones. Uh, We know that they had some up in the mountain and some down in the quarry doing these sorts of things. Um, So this was they probably got a a slightly rawer deal. But that, that was the situation at the time. We also learned that he had 3, 000, over 3,000 deputies. This is a very good example of middle management. The art of delegation. You can't do everything yourself. You can't hold on to the power. You can't be in charge of everything. You have people under you that you trust. And he set up this principle of middle management, which is pretty much one of the foundational principles of business today. We still use it. And they were doing the tough work. And notice it says great stone and costly stones for the foundation. You see, the foundation of the temple ultimately was not really going to be seen. But Solomon still wanted them to be the best costly stones that he could find. And they had to be because they had to be firm and secure because they were going to support the entire edifice of the temple. And foundation stones in the ancient world are quite amazing. Now we don't obviously, if you go, if you go to, it's like in Israel today, this is obviously Herod's temple, not Solomon's temple. 
But some of these foundation stones are found 20 metres under the ground to the bedrock. Okay, so they're 20 metres, that's how far they would go down to make sure that they were building and building a solid foundation for the temple of God. And how much does this speak to us of the Christian life? How much do we talk about the, the, sim, the, the kind of symbolic picture of roots growing deep in the discipleship process? And this is what we want. Sometimes you've got to go really, really deep if you want to build a house on top. You know, unless the Lord builds a house, they labour in vain. But as we grow our roots deep, often it's unseen. It's those unseen works as we spend time with Christ, and as we grow in our relationship with him, and the fruit comes much later. The house comes on top. Some of the quarried stone used in the Western Wall, we can see them underneath the, in the rabbi's tunnels today. Um, they're just massive. The largest one of them all is 13.6 metres long, 4.6 metres thick, 3 metres high, and it's estimated to weigh 570 tonnes. To this day, they still don't know how they really got it there in the way that they did. It's, it's massive. And again, this just shows me the skill of the people, you know, the ancient world. They had a lot of skills that we've obviously lost today. Now, the foundation stone, interestingly, I'm go- going into sort of modern times a little bit here with you. The Dome of the Rock today, 7th century it was built. It has a large stone. If you've ever seen a picture of the inside of it, it has a big sort of open area with a large stone in it, which is considered to be the foundation stone of the temple. Now, I know there's some controversy around that, but it's clearly a very ancient stone that they've got there. It was considered to be the peak of Mount Moriah before Herod's expansion around the Temple Mount changed the topography a little bit. It was considered to be the site upon which the Holy of Holies was built and where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And obviously, in Islamic tradition, they've added a few things for their for their own uh, situation on there. It's a very tense area today. You may have seen it was uh, it was Jerusalem Day uh, just yesterday, I believe, or the day before. Um, and for, it was also coincided with the end of Ramadan. Ramadan is a festival that celebrates the giving of the Quran, and um, generally, uh, you know, thousands of Muslims flood onto the Temple Mount to the mosque there. But because it was Jerusalem Day at this time the Israeli government allowed a few Jews to go up onto the Temple Mount, which usually they would not allow in Ramadan. And obviously, you see here sort of the antithesis of what we saw with Solomon and Hiram, Jew and Gentile working together to build the house of God. This time, when you had Jew and Gentile on the Temple Mount, it ended in riots. Obviously, the Islamic, they could not allow Jews to be on the Temple Mount during Ramadan and this is a sort of a backwards logic that we have here but that is where we are today and we can see sort of the the spiritual applications behind that it was the holiest site in Judaism this foundation stone let me read to you a Roman era midrash this is a, a Jewish writing from the first century they say this and the navel is set as the navel is set in the center of the human body so is the land of Israel the navel of the world situated in the center of the world and Jerusalem in the center of the land of Israel and the sanctuary in the center of Jerusalem and the holy place in the center of the sanctuary and the ark in the center of the holy place and the foundation stone before the holy place because from it the world was founded. That's the sort of mindset that we have to do with the Jewish people and the foundation stone. That, And I think this is just fascinating. You see, because who does the foundation stone point us towards? In fact, it's the exact name, isn't it? It's a title of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 28. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone. There's no mistake that that's the same language that Solomon, that we have in 1 Kings 5. Find for me chief costly stones for this foundation stone. And now we have the prophet Isaiah saying that a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, and he who believes in it will not be disturbed. It's talking about Jesus Christ. 
as that costly foundation stone. He is the foundation stone. So we really can truly say that from him the world was founded because we know that through him all things were created. So quite literally, that, that sort of Jewish midrash about the, the, uh, the foundation stone is in, is in fact true if we take it from a sort of Christian interpretation there. The church is built upon this foundation. Ephesians 2, I quoted it earlier, I'll read the whole thing now as we close. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. That's the foundation stone, the cornerstone. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And then in 1 Peter 2.5 it says that you are living stones being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, except offering spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God. We are living stones in the temple. We learn in chapter 6 of Kings, that we'll do next week, that one of the weird commands was that no sounds of the hammer was to be heard in Jerusalem as the temple was being constructed there. All the work had to be done elsewhere. And again, just our last sort of typology here. What a picture. We are out. We are these living stones now. The workmen, we are being chiseled away. We are being cut. We are being purified. We are being sanctified. So that when the millennial kingdom comes, we will have those glorified bodies and we will fit perfectly as Christ would have us to be as we represent him as the image of God and we see Jesus Christ like he is. We will fit perfectly into the household of God as living stones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word and just for the amazing truths in this chapter. I pray that they would take root in our heart, Lord God, that we would look at you with just renewed respect and awe, Lord God, and that we would lay our lives down for you. I pray for this group now that you would help us to meditate on these things as we go out for the rest of the week and prepare our hearts for meeting on Sunday, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.